But hey, we're in Romans chapter 8, uh, and as you are turning there, um, so I have, over the past, over the past several years, um, I've had the opportunity to speak to a lot of different people, and a lot of different people who have a lot of different beliefs, right? I've spoken to people who uh, believe in God, I've spoken to people who do not believe in God, I've spoken to people who are Christians, people who are of other faiths, Hindu, Buddhists, uh, Muslims, um, people who uh, are not even sure what they believe. And, uh, and what I've noticed is that a lot of times when it comes to people who either struggle with uh, belief in God or struggle with Christianity, different things like that, what I've learned is that one thing that holds them up a lot is this idea of bad things happening in the world, right? It's this idea of, okay, suffering. How does, how does a good God allow for brokenness? How does good God allow for suffering? And this is something that a lot of people struggle to answer, or they do give an answer, but they give an answer that they've just heard before, and then when somebody pushes them a little bit farther on it, they don't really have much of a response. Either that or what happens oftentimes for many people is that they have an answer, but then when they go through difficult times, their answer is not something that they actually believe. And what happens is in the midst of that suffering, they're tempted to lose faith in God. Or what happens ultimately is sometimes for many people, they end up leaving the faith altogether. One thing that's important for us to understand as Christians, especially as young people, is that in order for us to be able to go through this life faithfully, in order for this, us to live a life that honors God, pleases God, and, and honestly, in order for us to be able to share the gospel with people effectively, you have to have a proper theology of suffering. You have to have a proper theology of suffering, of why do we suffer? Why do we struggle? Why is the world broken? And sadly, for many people, they don't have a good answer for that. And because of that, they're unable to endure when the suffering comes. Because here's one thing I want you guys to know, is that whether you are the, a sixth grader, you're uh, a twelfth grader, or you're an adult volunteer, it does not matter. At some point in your life, and oftentimes multiple points in your life, you will experience brokenness and suffering. You will. Every person in this room, at some point in your life, is going to have someone that you love die. Everybody in this room, all of us are going to experience hardship. Maybe it's not even that extreme. Maybe it's just something difficult. Maybe it's people, there's broken relationships or broken friendships, whatever it may be. And we have to understand is why does God allow for this brokenness to happen? And not only that, is how do I endure it? How do I endure it? Not simply, okay, man, if I'm supposed to be a Christian, I'm supposed to live my life and, and have joy that passes all under, or p joy and peace that passes all understanding and all these things. The question is, how is it that I can not just, just grin and bear it and be miserable through times of suffering, but how can I go through times of suffering and still have my joy and my peace intact? Not just bear with suffering, but to thrive in it. Well, there's a couple things we're going to look at tonight, and ultimately we're going to see this in, in Romans chapter 8. So I want to start actually reading in verse 16, or actually in verse 15, we're going to read uh, through verse 25. It says, verse 15, Romans 8, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs to God, uh, sorry, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There's a couple things we're going to see tonight. First thing we need to see is this, is the certainty of future glory. The certainty of future glory. In verses 15 and 17, we see this beautiful section that, uh, that Paul speaks about us being adopted as the children of God. See, Romans chapter 8, at this point, Paul is speaking about the benefits of salvation. What are the benefits of being saved from our sins? What are the benefits of being somebody who is a follower of God? What, what is the benefits of this? And here's the thing I want us to understand. This is very, very important. The benefits that I'm going to be talking about tonight, you need to hear this, are, and I, talked, I said this last week, are only for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You with me? So like, understand this, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, if you have trusting in Christ for salvation, if you are not trusting in your own works, if you're saying that it is because of the righteousness of Jesus and his death in my place that I can inherit eternal life, if that is where you are tonight, then awesome. But if not, these things do not apply to you. But this is where we're at. We need to understand the certainty of future glory. Paul is describing this. We talked about this last week, that the first benefit of being a child of God, of being saved, is the fact that there is no condemnation, right? That we can live our life on this earth with no shame, no regret, no guilt, right? No, not worrying about being condemned, but we can live it in freedom knowing that because God the Father has not rejected the Son, He has not and will not reject us. That's good news. That is something that we need to remind ourselves of every single day. But there's more to that, right? I think of those old, uh, those old, not even old, but there's, I guess they're happening now, but like those info commercials, right? But wait, there's more, right? But wait, there's more. So we have this amazing gift that we have, but wait, there's more. And I don't know about you, but just the idea of being free from guilt and shame and condemnation, if I was you, I'm thinking, okay, God, like, that's all I need, Right? Like, that's all I need. I don't need anything else. You know, just, hey, give me my little corner of heaven. I don't even need a nice house in heaven, right? Just give me, like, I'll sleep in a box in heaven before I'll sleep in a mansion in hell, right? Like, like I'll, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. Like, I, I want you guys to understand something, is that if God did not do a single thing for me other than save me from my sins, he would still be worthy of all of my worship. If he never did a single good thing for me, he would still be worthy of all of my worship. But there's more. There's so much more. See, what does Paul say here? He says in in verses 15 and 16, this idea that we have been adopted. He says that we have been adopted as his children, as children of God. And because we are children of God, we are heirs of God. 
Now, when I think of an heir, somebody who is somebody who is in, inherits something, somebody who is in line to inherit. So, like, when you think of, uh, like, like, a king or a queen, right? So, like, if the king, the oldest son, he is what? The heir to the throne, right? When the king dies or, or when the king uh, steps down, then it is the son who steps up. He is the one who, he is the heir. He is the one who is in line to receive all of the things that were passed down to him from his father. And we're not simply heirs, but we're heirs with Christ. Meaning this, that when we are in heaven one day, there is an inheritance that awaits you. There is an inheritance that awaits me. That which is rightfully God's, he willingly shares with us as his children. Now, this is important for us to understand because we talked about, man, there's a lot of benefits that we get to experience right now as Christians, but you need to know this, guys, right now. If you are a Christian, this life is not as good as it gets. This life is not as good as it gets. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of times preachers make and, or, or Christians make in general is that we focus so much on the temporary benefits of Christ, which are incredible, and we neglect the eternal because the eternal are the things that we can't see. So we're like, ah, you know what, that doesn't really connect with people. But you need to know, guys, that, man, there is a future that awaits you that you could not possibly imagine if you are in Christ. You have to believe this. You have to know this. This is not something that is superficial or something that is out here in the ether. No, this is a reality. I want you to know that the future glory that God has for those who are his children is more real than the room you are sitting in right now. See, the inheritance of the Christian is not unique to Romans 8, but it's all throughout the Bible, especially the, the New Testament. Ephesians 1 it says that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 18, skipping down a few verses. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Colossians 1, 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hebrews 6, 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises and I could go on and on but this idea that there is an inheritance that awaits the Christian and for you to lose sight of that future reality is going to make your present reality significantly more difficult it is the hope of a future glory that pushes us through present sufferings you see God did not simply spare you when he saved you I think that's kind of, for honest, that's kind of the thought that we have oftentimes when we think of when God saves us from our sins, we have this idea that he has simply spared us. But no, what we see here is that he has not only spared you, he's not simply spared you, but he has adopted you. And as his child, he pours out all of his goodness onto you. How God has chosen, I want you to think about this, how God has chosen to glorify himself in the eyes of all of creation is to take you and to take me and all of your sin, all of your brokenness and all of the things about you that you wish were not so and he takes you in that and he makes you glorious. 
that God has chosen to glorify himself by glorifying you. Romans 8, 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's the question is, why do you think he would make such a payment? One commentator, one preacher put it this way. He says, why would he give such an expense? Why would he do it? So that he could withhold favor from you? So that he could keep you looking at how bad you are? He did it in order to lavish grace upon his people. To take the smallest, tiniest, most awkward saint and to set them above angels and seraphs. Now, I want, you, I want us to think about this. Let's do some practical thinking, right? 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this. It says, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. See, there is a goodness that awaits you that no person can even imagine. There is a goodness that awaits the Christian in future, in glory, that you cannot right now, you have not, and you will not ever be able to fathom in your mind. But here's the question, what is this goodness? It isn't merely our standing before God. It isn't simply the fact that we will have a perfect standing before God. Why is that? Because we saw last week that you already have a perfect standing with God if you have your faith in Christ. That you already, right now, have a perfect standing with Christ. Even when you are glorified in heaven, you will not be more right with God than you are right now. And that should be encouraging to you. That when you are given a new glorified body in heaven, you are standing in the presence of God, you will not be more right with him than you, than you are right now. So what is this extra grace, this extra blessing, this extra goodness that I have not received yet? If that's what I have now, what is waiting for me? What is waiting for me? You see, as a Christian, you need to know, like I said, that this life is not as good as it gets. If your faith is in Jesus, this world is as close to hell as you will ever get. But if your faith is not in Christ, understand that this life is as close to heaven as you will ever get. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. I want you to, we actually talked, uh, Pastor Ethan preached on this passage this past week. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7 says this. And raised us up, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do this? So why did he raise us from, we were spiritually dead in our sins, and he raised us up to life. Why did he do this? Verse 7, so that. That's an important word. Last week, we learned about therefore. This week, we're going to see so that. So that. So he did this. What was the motivation? What was the reason? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that God has saved you. Why? So that he can show to all of creation, to all of the angels, just how good and kind and wonderful he actually is. See, you are the means by which God has chosen to show his immeasurable riches and of his kindness. Let's put it this way. Imagine that there was a billionaire who was getting a lot of bad press. People who were saying he wasn't kind, he was selfish, he wasn't very, you know, he wasn't very giving, he wasn't very charitable. And this billionaire, in order to correct everyone's view, in order to give everyone a proper view of just how kind he is, he chooses you. 
He says, I'm going to show everyone just how kind I am by lavishing all of my riches on you. Now, the difference between the billionaire situation and our situation in God is that there is no limit to the blessings that God has. This is good news. And I know for a lot of us, it's like, oh, this feels weird. This feels prosperity gospelish. No, because we're going to get to the reality of suffering in just a second. This is, here's the thing, is that prosperity gospel promises heaven now. That's the problem with that, right? It promises heaven without the suffering. What, what the true gospel says is, in spite of suffering, there is a glory that you could not imagine. Even the false teaching of prosperity gospel falls short to the glory that is actually coming to us in heaven. Same commentator says this, he goes, when you walk into glory, imagine this, it will be an object lesson for all of creation, even creation that we don't even know or understand. And they will look at what you were. They will look at what you are. They will look at what God has done, the grace that he has poured out on you, and they will worship God in a way that they could never have worshiped him before if, they had not, if he had not done this good thing for you. But then it doesn't stop there. Every day, God would increase the grace, lavish more and more upon you each day, so that each day, all of creation will look at you and have a greater vision of who God is and worship him in greater degree. That every day, his grace is, in, is increased and increased in all of creation, and the angels will look at God's goodness being poured out onto you, and they will worship God for just how good he is. That he demonstrates the riches of his kindness, according to Ephesians 2, by how he is kind to you. And the good news is, that, is this, is that it's not for a moment. It's not even for, like, the first year, you know, like... There's some things that you do, and when you first start out, it's really great. Then over time, it gets worse, and you're like, mm, this isn't always cracked up to be. No, this isn't just that. It says that this is for all of eternity. And I think a lot of us don't really realize, we don't grasp how long eternity is. I think one of the reasons that we're so short-sighted is because we forget the scope of eternity. I want you to listen to this quote from David Lodge. Think of a ball of steel as large as the earth and a fly would land on it once every million years. When the ball of steel is rubbed away by the friction from the fly, eternity will not even have begun. This is what we're talking about. This is a goodness that when you, at verse 18 says, when you compare your present day sufferings, it does not even compare. It is not worth comparing. You see, when we speak about our salvation, it's important for us to focus on the things that we are no longer subject to, like we did last week, no longer subject to shame, no longer subject to guilt. We see the benefits of what we experience now, but please hear me that the glory that awaits us is what drives us. It is what awaits us that drives us. Please do not put all of your eggs in the basket of right here and right now. Do not put all of your eggs in the basket of however many years you may have on this earth. And it's because of this that Paul says in verse 18 that the present sufferings of right now are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. You see, Paul doesn't say that suffering does not exist. Please hear me. 
He doesn't say that suffering doesn't exist. He does not deny suffering. If anything, Paul has suffered more than anybody. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28, he actually talks about his suffering. He says this, he goes, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me uh, of my anxiety for all of the churches. And this is the same man that says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed like fathom that wrap your mind around it it does not minimize your suffering now it doesn't mean that your suffering now does not exist what it means is is man in the midst of that suffering I know it's only temporary but the glory that awaits me is eternal and the glory that awaits me is something that I cannot even fathom how amazing it is See, Paul knows what it means to suffer, but he also knows what it means to receive an inheritance from God. See, the power to endure suffering comes as a result of the hope of our inheritance. And I think the reason that so many of us struggle in the midst of our suffering, including myself, is because we focus so much on right now. Even in good ways, right? Even when it talks about, man, the blessing that I have in God right now that I experience. Man, I have peace for right now. I have joy for right now. I, have, I, have, I, I can go to God with my concerns and cast them at his feet, and I know he doesn't turn me away. And Man, that's great. That's amazing. We should never lose sight of that. But please hear me, guys, is that even when, that make, even when it's hard for you to imagine that, imagine your future glory. It should always be on our minds. It should always be on our minds. See, and here's another thing, is that we talk about evangelism oftentimes, and this is the way that, okay, we tell people that we love because we don't want them to suffer in hell for eternity, but think about it this way. The people you love, if you love them, don't you want them to experience that goodness with you? I've given this illustration before, I think. I don't know. I've been talking to you guys forever, so maybe I have, maybe I haven't. But I am married to a wonderful woman named Kayla. For those of you who don't know my wife, my wife is Puerto Rican. I clearly am not, right? And she introduced me to a restaurant called Lalo's, okay? I don't know if you know of this place, but it's a Puerto Rican barbecue place, and it is delicious. Honestly, it is a life-changing experience eating at this place. If you have not, it's in Orange City. And I, being foolish, the first time we ordered it on DoorDash, because, you know, that's how we were. I was feeling wealthy that day. You know, I want to drop, a, you know, a ton of money on DoorDash. But, so I ordered two separate meals, not knowing just how much food was in one meal. So now, whenever we order Layla's, we just split it. But here's the thing, though, is that when I experienced the goodness of that restaurant, I wanted to share it with everybody. I called all of my Caucasian friends who don't, you know, who don't know what the spices that I just experienced are. I'm like, my friends, you have to hear this. You have to taste this, right? This is something that I didn't grow up with. This is amazing. 
It's because of how good it was that I wanted to share it with people. Not because I was afraid they were missing out, but because I wanted them to share in the joy that I was experiencing. And the same thing goes for sharing the gospel, is that if you love somebody, you want them to experience the goodness that you have experienced, and you want them to experience the goodness that awaits you. See, the Holy Spirit does not remove suffering from us. The Holy Spirit fixes our eyes on something that is more of a reality than even our sufferings are. Understand this, that if you are a Christian, the beauty of what you have not yet seen is more real than the hurt that you currently see. 2 Corinthians 4.18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, it is the perspective that the Christian has that enables him or her to endure suffering. Without heavenly hope, the Christian life is foolish and tragic. Paul even says that if, the, if Christ is not raised, then we are the most to be pitied. Yet in light of eternity, it is the wisest choice a person could possibly make. So we see the, the certainty of future glory, but now we see the second thing, and this is actually the last thing we're going to talk about, is the purpose of present suffering. The purpose of present suffering. Well, if God's plan is to pour out his grace, pour out his goodness on us, and display his goodness, then why is it that we experience brokenness and suffering now? Why wouldn't God just pour that out on me now? Why, why is it that I experience this brokenness? Why is it that every single person in this room, when I say of suffering and brokenness in your life, all of us know of something that comes to mind? Now the common answer to this question is, why is there brokenness to this world, in this world is this. Is often the, question, the answer is this, because of sin. And that is correct. That is the correct answer. But we have to, let's, let's go deeper, right? Let's go deeper. Why does sin bring brokenness? Because if God is in control of all things, then it is God that has ordained that brokenness comes as a result of sin. So why would he do this? Well, let's look. Paul says in Romans 8 here that all creation was subjected to futility. In essence, what he's saying is that all creation is held to brokenness. All of creation is, is, is enslaved to this brokenness, to this futile way of being. But who, who is it that subjected it? Who is it that subjected creation? Paul says that it is God who subjects creation to brokenness. And here's the thing, why would God do that? It wasn't your sin that subjected creation to brokenness. It was God that subjected uh, creation to brokenness. But why would God do this? Why would God allow for you and for me to experience hardship? Why would God allow these things? This is a good question. All of us in this room who have experienced hardship, who have experienced bad times in our lives, can have probably thought this, God, why would you allow this? Paul says that he did this, he said that God subjected creation to futility, why? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here's what we mean. God subjected the world to futility to point it to the hope of being free from it. God subjected creation to futility to point it to the hope of one day being free from it. Here's what I mean. God allows you to hurt so that you will know that what is causing the hurt is not what you were created for. 
I'm going to break this down a little bit more, right? We're going to get, we're, we're going to put our thinking caps on. We're going to think a little bit. Let's do this, right? All people are sinners, right? You guys with me? All people are sinners. All people are sinners in need of a Savior. This is an established fact. This is all throughout the Bible. Not only is it established in the Bible, which is our highest source of authority, but even non-Christians and non-religious people would agree that all, nobody is perfect. All people make mistakes. And because we are sinners, we are all subject to God's judgment and God's wrath. This is another biblical fact, biblical statement. It, it, it's just the truth. We are all as sinners. We are all subject to God's judgment and God's wrath. Now, we've spent extensive time talking about what God has done to make us right with him, right? That how Jesus took the judgment of God, took the wrath of God in our place, and he rose from the dead. And so what we see is salvation is available. Salvation has been made available to us. You with me? So we are in need of salvation. God has made salvation available, but we do not want salvation because we have no reason to want it. Think about it. If it wasn't for suffering, you would have no desire to be, to be saved. If it wasn't for brokenness, there would be no desire for you to seek something better. You see, it is only when we are touched by the brokenness of this world that we desire something better than this world has to offer. Paul says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Now, I can actually talk about this now as somebody who has not experienced it, but has seen someone go through this. Today, actually, Carly turns 10 months, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. She made it. She made it. Right? So she's, Carly is 10 months old. For those of you who don't know, Carly is, is my daughter. And the contractions that Kayla experienced, the thing is that, like, so, like, they started off, you know, relatively small, but then they eventually get <laughs> ridiculous, right? And what happened was when Kayla started to feel those, contra those contractions and they started to become more frequent, what does that tell us? Tell us the baby is on its way. Baby is coming. See, contractions of a woman that a woman experiences when she's going into labor are intense, but they are how a woman knows the baby is coming. See, you see, it is in the pains of contractions to that, the, that point to the reality of what is coming. It is, if it wasn't for the pain of the contractions, the woman would not know the baby is coming. Likewise, it is the pains of life that point us to the coming glory of what is coming next. Every time we see this idea of the pains of childbirth being mentioned, it is always in Christ's return, or it is in this idea of, our, of us in, our, in future glory, right? You see, the most dangerous thing that a person can be is comfortable in their sinfulness. The most dangerous place a person can be is to be comfortable in their sin. It is only when they are touched by brokenness that they will seek that which can fix their brokenness. If not for brokenness, people do not seek what can fix it. When we, when we see the hurt of a miscarriage, when we feel the pain of divorce, when we see and feel the sting of death, we cry out in our pain that there has to be something better than this. There has to be something better than this. And I'm here to tell you tonight that there is. 
There is something better than this. And this is where our world is. All creation suffers and all people suffer. Paul goes on to say, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All people suffer, Christians and non-Christians alike. And all people are looking for ways to escape it. Perhaps that is where you are tonight, is you are looking for ways to escape your pain. Maybe you're here tonight simply because you don't want to be home. And tonight is simply an escape from home. People are constantly trying to escape their brokenness. People turn to religion, relationships, money, success, self-improvement, and anything that can distract them from the brokenness that they experience, but it can never deliver them. It can never give them what they want. Even tonight, those of us who are gone, who've gone through suffering, maybe tonight you are currently suffering, you're currently struggling, and everything you turn to leaves you more empty-handed than you were at first. Maybe it numbs the pain for a second, but it can't do anything to fix it. It can't do anything to fix the brokenness. No matter what you turn to, nothing truly satisfies. But please understand something, that the brokenness you feel is meant to point you to the one that can heal your brokenness. It's like, it's like so when you go to the dentist, all right? I don't know about you, there was a time where I used to love the dentist. Not anymore. And I don't know where I don't know where that switch goes off, but I've reached that point in my life where I just don't necessarily love the dentist anymore. You love the dentist, that's good. You should love the dentist. But it's like when you go to the dentist and, and they, they give you fillings or they're gonna pull a tooth or something like that, and uh, usually for me it's I get fillings. I don't know why, I brush my teeth all the time, but maybe it's the Coke I drink. That's what they tell me. But hey, you know, I'll get better one day. Right? What they do is they numb like half your face. And literally what they do is they just, they, they take this needle and they go, and then they, they numb it and they're like, I'll be right back. And they walk away and I'm laying there and all I feel is like one side of my face go, oh, right? And I'm like, touch, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Right, and it's weird. And then I like try to like smile and I'm like, hmm, you know? And it looks ridiculous. And what they do is they do all their stuff and they're whatever, and they're like, okay. They're like, now, don't eat anything until feeling has come back to your face. And you're like, okay, right? About it. Why is that? Why do they tell you that? Why do they tell you don't eat anything until feeling has come back into your face? Because if you're not careful, you'll end up chewing straight through your cheek and you won't feel it. I have made this mistake, not going all the way through, but I have bit my cheek and been like, I'm tasting blood and I don't know why. And it's like, because I got a massive hole on the inside of my cheek. But I didn't know it because I couldn't feel it. Now here's the thing, right? You can severely damage yourself, but it is the pain that keeps you from doing so. Likewise, it is the temporary pain of today that God uses us to save us from the destruction of eternity in hell. It is temporary pain that God allows that is actually what saves you. See, when you put your hand on an iron and it hurts, what your brain is telling you is if you don't take your hand off, you're going to severely damage your hand. It's not pain for the sake of pain. It's pain for the sake of salvation. 
It's pain to point you to what can fix you. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. What does that mean? It means that those that are made in the image of God, we are all made for a longing for eternity and a longing for glory. I want you guys to think about death for a moment. Very encouraging thing. But death happens to everybody. Statistics are true. One of one people will die. But here's the question. If it's so sure, why does it hurt so badly? My great-grandmother passed away a couple years ago. She was 98 years old. I mean, she lived a long life. It's the first time I'd ever really experienced death of somebody that was close to me. And of course, like, I was happy that she wasn't in pain. I was happy that she was with the Lord, but it still hurt. It's like, why? I mean, she's 98 years old. She's lived, I mean, she's, she's gone almost as far as you can go. You know what I'm saying? Why does it hurt so bad? Why is it that losing a loved one is something that we all will experience, but it hurts so badly? And I believe it's this, because God has put eternity into our hearts, like Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, and it is because death is unnatural to the one made in God's image, that, and that is why it breaks us. See, people say that death is natural, and to an extent it is, but I want you to understand that to someone that is a creation of God, death is not natural. You were not made to die. Death is the most unnatural thing we experience because God's perfect design does not include death. However, in order to show us that we need a Savior, he allows us to be touched by it. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God removed them from the Garden of Eden. And I've always thought in my mind, I always thought, okay, well, it was like punishment, right? Punishment for what they did. But what do we see in Genesis 3, 22 through 23? It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherub and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why did God remove them from the Garden of Eden? He removed them so that they would not have eternal life. They're like, why? Why would God allow such a horrible thing to happen? Because if he did not allow the brokenness of death, they would spend eternity at enmity with him and they would spend eternity consequently under his wrath. You see, the most merciful thing that God can do is to allow you to be touched by brokenness so that you can be drawn to the one who can make you whole. And this is, as I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm closing with this, that as a side note, we need to remember that while God may ordain and allow brokenness, God does not call someone to sin. So somebody who has sinned against you, God did not make them do that. God does not sin. He doesn't make people sin. Now we know that God has many other reasons for brokenness. Genesis 50, 20 says that what, what, man, what Satan intended for evil, God turned for good. God works all things for his glory and for our good. So we can't cover every single way that God uses brokenness. But what Paul is doing here is he's highlighting that the use of brokenness and pointing people to eternity. Because God is sovereign over brokenness, what does this mean? It means this, that no suffering is meaningless. No pain that you experience in this life is meaningless. I want you guys to know that. It's all for a purpose. And we may not understand the purpose right now, but I promise you it is for a purpose. 
It means also the second thing, this, is that the best way to waste your suffering is to suffer and not turn to Jesus. The best way to waste suffering is to focus on you. If you want to waste your suffering, don't look to Jesus. This is the last thing I'm going to say. I'm done. See, God does not leave us alone in our sufferings, but through the Holy Spirit, he comforts us in ways that only he can. Listen to the rest of this. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes with, for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, well, what is that good? What is the good that God is working out? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is the ultimate purpose of suffering that Paul mentions here? It's this, that the ultimate purpose of suffering is to make you more like Jesus. Because I want you guys to know that no one in this room, including myself, has ever suffered more than Christ suffered. To take the full wrath of God for your sins and for my sins upon himself. And it is in our suffering we are made more like Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what that verse says. Is like, what does he predestine? He predestined for us to be made into the image of Jesus. Meaning this, that everything in your life, the good things and the bad things, God has predestined to make you more like Christ. And that is part of the evidence of being saved. Is that over time you are made more into the image of Christ. Why? Because God has predestined it to be that way. And if it is me being made more into the image of Jesus that brings him the most glory, then you know what? Let it happen. Because there's no suffering that I go through that detracts me from the ultimate goal of glory. 